Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And if you don't have your Bibles uh, right after that hymn that we just sang, you will uh, see the scripture there. I want to point out some of the words that we just sang. In the second verse, it says, Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. And we're about to go through this passage. We're going to do it a little bit differently today. We're going to go through verse by verse and then come back and analyze it. But I want you to think for a moment first about that phrase, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Because our tendency is to apply that to the moments of Jesus on the cross. Or perhaps as he carried his cross up that hill. But we mustn't forget that every moment of his life, he was conscious of what he had come to do. Every moment. He knew that he was walking toward the cross. Now, as awful as the pain was on the cross, the physical pain, we have often talked about that and heard it talked about. His greatest pain on the cross was not physical. His greatest pain as he was on the cross was when all of the sin of all of his people was put upon him and the wrath of his Father rested upon him. Not because of his sin, but because of ours. On the day of the triumphal entry, there is no question that he was aware that within a few days, that is what he was facing. Keep that in your mind as we read this passage in Matthew 21 from God's Word. It begins, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, Jesus had enjoyed a Sabbath rest. If you remember, Sabbath in that day would have been, as in our day, it would have been yesterday. He had been with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, good friends of his, 
that he had stayed with probably on numerous occasions. And so, before he entered into this Passion Week, he had spent the Sabbath day with them. We know that uh, he was anointed for his death by Mary. If you remember that account. So he begins to go toward Jerusalem with his followers, and it says, came to Bethphage. Now, in our day, we don't know exactly where that is, although it's, it's pretty easy for people to trace the, the steps. It was evidently a small village somewhere up on the Mount of Olives, and so it would have been, in some sense, overlooking Jerusalem. And so he headed in that direction, And then, verse 2, it says, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, whether he knew about uh, this donkey and colt, because He was fully man and fully God, and so he uh, knew all things, and yet in one sense, because he willingly limited himself, he, uh, while he walked this earth, had that mysterious union of these natures. Whether he knew miraculously that there would be a cult there, or whether he knew in a natural way, we just simply don't know. But I will tell you this, it doesn't matter. It's okay if he knew in a very natural and human way. Here's a a scenario how that could have happened. He could have at some point, uh, because he had traveled that direction uh, numerous times before, and he had followers all over the place, he might have had some uh, followers there in Bethphage, who might have said, look, next time you come to Jerusalem, if you need a a donkey, you just stop here. I've always got it tied up out here. And if anyone gives you any trouble, just say, the Lord has need of it, or something like that. Could have been a very natural thing. In any case, we see uh, that that's what took place. In fact, that was the instruction, verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, it is important to note how he designates himself at that point. Because there are those that want to say that uh, when it came to Jesus, he never saw himself as the Lord Some say that was an invention of the early church, that uh, Jesus just saw himself as having some kind of a ministry among the people. But then the early church looked back and they were trying to invent this religion that later became known as Christianity, and they started calling him the Lord at that point. Well, that's not what the Bible says. In fact... It is worthy to note that he doesn't just say, tell him my Lord has need of that. 
because that could have been just a designation of my master or, you know, someone who is a teacher, that kind of a thing. But he said, tell them the Lord has need of it. You see, he is about to give a glimpse of who he is. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Even before we see whether or not that worked, whether or not that was successful, Matthew uh, jumps on this and he says, look, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Look at uh, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the uh, foal of a beast of burden. Now Matthew makes it clear that this, this is a, a direct fulfillment. So whether it was a, uh, took place naturally or supernaturally, it was a supernatural fulfillment of that which was prophesied way back in Zechariah. If you look down your Bible at your, the, the notes down at the bottom or a footnote, it'll say Zechariah 9, verse 9. And that's what this is, a, a fulfillment of that. The daughter of Zion is Jerusalem. That's Israel. But we need to understand, later on in the New Testament, Israel you know, is kind of redefined. You have Israel, the nation, and then you have true Israel, which is those who really believe. Only the true Israel would ultimately see this for what it was. But even they, not until later. The triumphal entry had to have been a mystery to those who were looking on. Look at verse 6 then. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So everything happened just as Jesus directed them. They found the donkey. According to a parallel passage over in uh, Luke, uh, the owner did object, and they did just what he said. The Lord has need of him, and the owner said, fine, here's your donkey, take, take it. And uh, he mounted the colt and began to ride in to Jerusalem. Now look what happened at this point, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's what you would do if a king was coming in. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now think about this for a moment. Let's look at it. Let's step back and, and look at it from a, a biblical theological perspective. Here the people are taking over with basically a phrase that Jesus was introduced with as a baby. Do you remember? With the shepherds. How the angels came and announced him. 
Glory to God in the highest. And that's basically what we see here. So we have Jesus introduced in that way. We have the people here. And by the way, even at that point, who was to know what he would fulfill? And then we have the people shouting out, Hosanna to God in the highest. Again, foreshadowing. They didn't understand fully. They could not have understood fully what was going on at this point. What were they foreshadowing? Well, when would it happen again? I have no doubt that after Jesus died, was buried, was raised from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, that as he ascended, I have no doubt in my mind that the angels would have shouted, glory to God in the highest. But even that, looking forward to when Jesus comes back with a shout of the archangel, glory to God in the highest. All of these things being a shadow of that which is to come. But the people here, although they didn't know all that was going on, they knew what kind of an entrance this was. It was an entrance of a king. And the people had to, those who were there, those who were following along, those who stumbled onto this or heard the commotion, they had to make a decision. Do I see this one as a king? Should I glorify him in that way or not? And it was a mixed crowd in that way. We know that it was. Some were shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. Save now. Save us, we pray. Now that was a a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was often used during Passover. But it would have, in all likelihood, been used in the sense of thinking in terms of being saved from the Romans, from the Roman government and that kind of a thing. Maybe this king will be the one to save us in that day. But notice there's a phrase in here. Calls him the son of David. Now there are those that were in the crowd that were upset by that. They didn't like that Jesus was designated as the son of David. The chief priests and the scribes, they were not happy. In fact, if you look on down in verse 15, if you have your Bibles, it talks about what what happened later in the temple. Verse 15 says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, here's their reaction. They were indignant. was a problem. Well, they knew that that designation, the son of David, would have meant that uh, they saw him as a fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Messiah that was going to come. That's who the son of David was. So the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees were indignant. Now, in Jerusalem, two crowds merged. 
you, you picture, as we've been saying, they, one, one crowd would have been uh, the crowd that started with Jesus, probably a smaller crowd. Jesus, his disciples, maybe a few other followers. Uh, as they left Bethany, went to Bethphage, probably along the way, they picked up more and more people. When he got on the donkey, it says that uh, people began to worship. And then there was a crowd that came up from Jerusalem. There was a huge crowd in Jerusalem because it was Passover and Jerusalem filled up with people. And so these two crowds, as it were, kind of merge and then go back down into uh, the city. What were they thinking? We've talked about a couple of them, the groups, chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, they're indignant. You have his followers. You have his disciples. His disciples who again and again had wanted him to reveal himself as king. But what kind of king even were they looking for? And in that crowd, you had Judas, who too wanted him to reveal himself as the king that would save them in great power. But he was showing himself to be a different kind of king. He did not come in on that great stallion like a conquering king would come into a city. Instead, he comes like a king would come in peace, non-threatening. He comes on the back of a donkey. What, what were the people? They were shouting for a king. And within a few days, some of those same people were shouting, crucify him. Now the next verses really give us a clue what the city was really thinking about. We see the kind of the dilemma here of what they were talking about. Verse 10 says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? So you have all those that are in the crowd, then you have others that are saying, what's this commotion? Who's in the middle of it? People trying to catch a look, and they see uh, um, a gentle man on the back of a donkey coming slowly into the city. Verse 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you've got this obvious confusion of people with all kinds of opinions, the chief priests that are indignant. In fact, in the parallel passage, uh, Luke 19, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I want you to think about that account what we've just talked about. And I want us to, to analyze it. What do we learn? What, do we, what can we know more about Jesus from this? C.S. Lewis was a medieval historian at Oxford. Now, he uh, wrote a number of things. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his children's writings, the Chronicles of Narnia, 
maybe as science fiction writings, uh, another block of things that, that he wrote were what we would call Christian apologetics. Now, that sounds like, when you use the term apologetics, it sounds like we're apologizing for Christianity, but what that means, apologetics, means a defense of the faith. Now, here you had uh, C.S. Lewis, who was a well-known intellectual in England. He did addresses on uh, uh, BBC, lectures on BBC, and and so on. So he was rather famous. So it was, it was shocking when he professed faith in Christ and people who already respected him and, and said, wow, this, this guy's smart and yet he believes in Jesus. And so that's where a great deal of his impact came because of that. He had a, a series of lectures that he did on Uh, the BBC radio, that later became the book Mere Christianity, which is a classic book about Christian apologetics. And his concern uh, uh, was that there are people who would say about Jesus, would say, you know what, I, I don't believe he was a savior or anything like that, but I do think he was a great moral teacher. He was a good example. And C.S. Lewis was concerned about that because he felt that's not really an option. And in fact, he said he was one of three things. He was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. Now, that didn't originate with C.S. Lewis. In fact, uh, an 18th century Scots preacher, John Duncan, wrote, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, he called it. It is inexorable. Others have used the phrase, he was mad, he was bad, or he was God. And I came up with this week, he was crooked, he was crazy, or he was Christ, the king. Now let's go back to Lewis's formulation because it's really the best of these. Uh, he, he was, as I said, concerned about people who would say he's a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And what I want us to do is to look at this account that we've just heard of and see how this applies. Can we know who he is? Does he prove himself to be one of these three in this account? So let's look at the options. First of all, maybe he was a liar. Maybe he just lied about this whole thing, that he didn't really believe he was a king in any sense of the word. If he was a liar, then he would have had to conjure up this big parade to engineer it in some way, or, as he saw it happening, to 
be willing to accept it from others, knowing full well that he was not a king. The fact is, he didn't just get caught up in it. We know that. Because when, for instance, the Pharisees said, look, tell them to be quiet, rebuke your disciples, he ratcheted it up. (laughs) He said, look, if if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. What was he saying there? He was saying, creation will cry out that I'm their king. He was proclaiming himself to be the king of all creation. What an evil, deceitful man he would have to be if, indeed, he was a liar. Problem is, that there is nothing in his life that indicates that, that confirms or even implies that he was a liar. In fact, he told the truth when it hurt him. When his own family left him, it was because he told the truth. When he lost the crowds, it was because he told the truth. When he was in danger after he was arrested, he told the truth. If you're ever going to lie, those are the times to lie. But we don't see any indication of that. And in fact, those who hated him the most did not call him a liar. Some said he was a blasphemer, but they didn't question his moral life. There is a second option. Maybe he was a lunatic. Lewis says this vividly, and I I love the way Lewis says it. He said if, if he claimed to have the authority to forgive sin, but he couldn't really forgive sin then he is, this is how he puts it, on the same level as a man who says he is a poached egg. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying he's an absolute lunatic if he says I can forgive sin, or he says he's the king, but he isn't, then he's got to be crazy. You take him as seriously as you would somebody who says I'm a poached egg. So let's look at that. Again, it's interesting. Jesus is accused of many things, but we don't have any record of anyone accusing him of being crazy. His actions and his speech were under control at all times. And he was in control of the situation, not only his own life, but around him. Unlike someone who was deluded would be. He was rational. He never forced himself or pushed himself upon people.
people upon anyone. He didn't have to. And you know what? He still doesn't. He doesn't have to. And so if he is not a liar or a lunatic, could he be Lord? Again, C.S. Lewis would say, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see what he's saying? Here's the problem. Some want him to be a, 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 great, a great moral teacher. If you're a lunatic, of course you're not a great moral teacher. If you are a liar, you are neither great nor moral. If you are a lunatic or a liar, you cannot be a good example to people. And so, as Lewis says, he doesn't leave us with that option. And so C.S. Lewis proclaimed, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange, listen to this, strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And what about you? What will it be? As you think on this one that went into Jerusalem, letting his kingship, his being creator of the universe, letting it be known, was he a liar? Was he crooked? Was he completely crazy and deluded? Or is he Christ the King? As strange or terrifying or unlikely as it may seem for some of you, will you accept the view that he was and is Christ the King? Let's bow together.